Today Explained, I'm Sean Ramos from. I'm standing outside the Federal Reserve Building in Lower Manhattan. It's an old stone building with steel cages around its tall ground floor windows. There's a U.S. flag hanging above the main door and a couple Federal Reserve police officers standing under it. Right now, $7 billion of Afghanistan's money is being held here. It's the Central Bank of Afghanistan's reserve funds. And when the Taliban took over last August, the United States froze the money here in the Federal Reserve of New York. But one year later, the Afghan economy is crumbling and the United States is facing more and more calls to release this money. On the show today, we're going to hear about how dire things have become in Afghanistan and why people think the Taliban needs to be trusted with these billions of dollars of frozen funds. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Today explained, Ramos Firm, the second the United States withdrew from Afghanistan, the Taliban took over. It was clear proof that the previous government existed by the grace of the United States Armed Forces, and the story isn't dissimilar for the Afghan economy. It was twist-tied to the United States. Billions of the Afghan Central Bank's reserves were stashed at the Federal Reserve in New York, and the funds remain here as the Afghan economy is crumbling. What the end of the occupation showed once and for all is that the economy they set up for 20 years was a trap. Like the president couldn't pay his own office without the United States. And there were limits placed on production, on what could be produced, how it could be produced, where it could be produced. But the reality of that economy was that it was entirely dependent on the continuation of that occupation. And no one really thought about what happens the day that it ends. The US, the EU, the UN cut it off from the international financial system. There's something like $9 billion worth of Afghan central bank assets that they refused to, to return to the central bank of Afghanistan. That includes hundreds of millions that were actually the personal savings of just consumer banking. That also was a major setback. The lack of physical cash, you know, whether that be because ATMs and such aren't functioning 
or whether that be that there's no actual physical new notes being produced. All of this impacted the highest levels of the economy. The banks have largely remained closed. When they are open, there are strict limits on how much you can withdraw. And it all points to a much bigger fiscal problem of how Afghanistan is going to pay its way under a Taliban government. Today, we met a woman who had a fairly high position in the government. And, you know, she went from making 52,000 Afghanis to 13,000 in one year. A cousin of mine went from making 40-something thousand to 8,000 to make, making about $100 in one month to support seven people in his family. In the case of the woman, she's told to stay at home until they can find a place for her, quote-unquote. In the case of the man, you know, he goes to the office, he pays the gas money every month, but what does he really make to support, you know, the seven people in his household? And this is a very common predicament for people in this country and they're still relatively lucky in that they have some sort of an income. You know, there are so many other people that essentially as soon as the occupation ended, you know, these companies that were reliant on these logistics and these other kinds of contracts, they either ran away or they went out of business, which means that the people who worked for them also lost their jobs. And you have to remember that each of these people probably have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten others that they're supporting. Ali Latifi is a journalist based in Kabul. We asked him what life is like today for Afghans on the brink. You know, in the beginning, they were selling their possessions. Some people, you know, may sell or rent out their homes or their properties that they have. Those that had some level of that. I saw a driver of a foreign media outlet, you know, and he was pushing a cart on the streets collecting cans. People are doing anything that they can to make uh, some level of money. I mean, I've written about people who were selling their kidneys to make money, people who were donating blood to make money. You know, obviously, like the basic economy is going on. People have to buy food. They have to buy water. But it's much more difficult. I have no work, no money, no food. I have to sell my daughter, he says. I have no other choice. My father has sold me because we don't have bread, rice and flour. He has sold me to an old man. And then I think there's like a 6.2 magnitude earthquake back in June. It was Afghanistan's deadliest earthquake in two decades. The 6.1 magnitude quake struck this rural region in the middle of the night. Houses made of mud bricks and stone crumbled in an instant. How much worse does that make things? It makes it much worse because think about it with Hurricane Katrina. Even the U.S. government did an awful job at addressing a natural disaster, right? Yeah. They couldn't get it together enough. And then in Afghanistan, you know, again, when you had billions of dollars of aid during the Republic, there was so much corruption that when natural disasters did happen, there was so much corruption and incompetence in the government that it didn't actually go to the people that needed it, the money. And the systems weren't necessarily proper and the correct aid wasn't getting in. And now you have Talibs who have, they know how to blow something up. They don't know how to build it. And they don't necessarily have the education and the qualifications uh, to run, say, a ministry or a directorate or to know how to handle a proper aid distribution. So that makes it much more difficult in itself. The one good thing that I will say, 
you know, because I covered that earthquake and I was in the earthquake zones, is that I saw the Afghan people themselves taking the situation into their own hands. So you would see businessmen from Herat in the West coming and giving, you know, hundreds of thousands of Afghanis worth of aid. You know, you would see the owner of one of the biggest malls in Kabul coming and giving aid. You would see groups of young people coming. And the best part about it, again, like, I'm not saying this is good, but like the one good thing about it was that all of these people would come back and say, well, what do these people really need? What's going to get Afghanistan out of this economic crisis? Well, for one, you know, whoever is in charge of Afghanistan going forward needs to come up with a real economic plan that is no longer dependent on aid, that is dependent on production, on services, on exports, on imports, on the things that make an economy. You know, the Taliban has tried to regulate exports much more. They say they're encouraging local business and production as much as they can. But again, these are, you know, smaller sort of steps. These aren't actual plans. This is a great time for the Taliban to prove that they aren't the Islamic Republic, which means to prove that they aren't corrupt uh, and to prove that they won't be just beholden to the outside world for money in the sense that, you know, they depend on the outside world to pay their government salaries. Is there any future in Afghanistan that, that you can envision that doesn't involve the Taliban in control of the government? I mean, I think we need to ask, is bringing another regime going to solve anything? Because if you look at it, over the last 50 years, we went from a kingdom to a republic, to communism, to being run by warlords, and then to a civil war, then to being run by the Taliban for the first time, then to an alleged Western democracy, then back to the Taliban. Should we keep pushing for some kind of a regime change or should we push the Taliban to finally understand you won the war, you took over, you are the government now. So now you have to make the effort with the people and you have to embrace them and work with them, bring women back into their government jobs, restart these schools and find ways to, to, to fix the economy. Ali kept coming back to this idea when we spoke, and it kind of surprised me. He wasn't totally outraged by Taliban rule. He wasn't calling for a new regime. The Taliban government, to him, was the most viable one at this point, now that the world's focus on Afghanistan has long faded. I asked him if the Afghan people felt forgotten. Betrayed, forgotten, angry. And obviously, the, the racist rhetoric coming out from Europe and the United States during the beginning of the war in Ukraine also didn't help. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. Seeing reporters for some of the biggest media outlets in the world say, well, these aren't third world brown people, you know, which is almost their exact words. That didn't help either because that made it very clear that what we had been afraid of all along really was how you think. You know, to you, we are just third world brown people that deserve to be refugees. 
and sent off to Rwanda. Ali Latifi, he's a reporter based in Kabul. In a minute, we're going to hear why billions of dollars of Afghanistan's money is sitting in the Federal Reserve in New York. It's Today Explained. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is so cheap that Mint Mobile knows you think there must be a catch. Mint Mobile says, no, there is no catch. And for a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explained. That's mintmobile.com slash explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. There's a $45 upfront payment that's required that's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan, and additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is so cheap that Mint Mobile knows you think there must be a catch. Mint Mobile says no, there is no catch. And for a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explained. That's mintmobile.com slash explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. There's a $45 upfront payment that's required that's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan, and additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. We're back. Today explained, as you heard earlier in the show, the Afghan economy is in a shambles, and all the while, billions of dollars of the country's money are sitting in New York's Federal Reserve. The money belongs to Afghanistan's central bank, but the United States froze the funds when the Taliban took over the country last year. But the pressure to unfreeze them is mounting. Everyone from the United Nations Secretary General to U.S. lawmakers to foreign aid organizations to Andres Arauz think it's time to give the money back. I'm a senior research fellow at uh, CEPR, and I'm a former central banker. Andres was a central banker in Ecuador, where he also ran for president in 2021. Since he knows a thing or two about central banks, we asked him to help us understand the conflict around Afghanistan's reserves. So the total amount of money is $7 billion that's in the U.S., in the U.S. Federal Reserve. Uh, $9 billion is the total amount of reserves the uh, Central Bank of Afghanistan had uh, elsewhere, including the U.S., so uh, it includes some European countries. Quite a sizable amount for uh, one of the poorest countries in the world. This money is what's called international reserves of a country. And they are usually held by the country's central bank. Now, it's important to mention that a central bank is not just a bank that belongs to a government. It's a bank of banks. 
It's where private banks, where commercial banks also keep their money. So if you take that money away from the central bank, you're taking the money away from the commercial banking system, which means that depositors don't have access to their cash. Financial transactions are then impossible. The payment system does not work, and it makes it extremely difficult for people to go about uh, business, whether it's international trade, but also uh, domestic transactions. The, the people of Afghanistan need their bank accounts to be active. They need the payment system to work. And so there has been a lot of pressure from civil society, the United Nations, international organizations, uh, pressuring the Uni United States to basically let this money go. A lot of signers from uh, civil society organizations, humanitarian organizations, the Secretary General of the United Nations has said, please, we need this money back in Afghanistan. Freezing temperatures and frozen assets are a little combination for the people of Afghanistan. The function of Afghanistan's central bank must be preserved and assisted, and the pass identified for conditional release of Afghan foreign currency reserves. It is sort of arbitrary that uh, one country can take away the deposits of another country. Uh, so now there are some negotiations where, you know, Taliban and the U.S. government are on the table deciding what to do uh, about this money. And uh, it's very important that the full amount of money go back to the Central Bank of Afghanistan, not because we want to give this money to the Taliban, but because we want the financial system to function properly and we want the government institutions you know the different ministries the different institutions of government to work regularly in terms of paying their suppliers paying salaries to the public servants and so on why do you think it is that the biden administration is not releasing these funds well, the, there has been a lot of improvisation on behalf of the Biden administration with regards to the uh, Afghan funds. Uh, at first, they froze because they didn't know what else to do. Then they sat on the table with the Taliban. And uh, now they're saying, OK, sure, we recognize that we did something illegal uh, and maybe we can put a few Band-Aids on the situation and maybe we can release little droplets of these international reserves, you know, certain quantity every month. But that's not how finance works internationally, you know, whether you can't be bit by bit legal <laughs> every month, either you're illegal or you're legal. And when the United States recognizes the fact that these funds do belong to the Afghan people and to this uh, financial system of Afghanistan, they're basically recognizing that what they did was uh, unlawful. And uh, now we have to find a way uh, that, uh, uh, you know, restores the functioning of an important institution in every economy, such as the central bank. Can you imagine that, I don't know, for example, the European central bank all of a sudden didn't have access to its money, or the Mexican central bank, or, or even the U.S. Federal Reserve all of a sudden stopped working. This is the kind of crisis that's happening in Afghanistan, you know, basically a crisis where uh, the financial system is not working. People do not have access to their accounts, to their money, and uh, have to rely on either barter or just pro poverty, you know, don't have uh, uh, purchasing power. But unlike all the other examples you cited, Europe, 
Mexico, the United States, handing over this money to the Afghan Central Bank in a way is also handing over this money to a violent terrorist organization that runs the country. You can design safeguards so that the money doesn't go where it doesn't have to. And this is where the negotiations are. For example, the U.S. is requesting that the Afghan government set a trust fund, that auditors, third party contractors, and so on, to monitor that the transactions are not going for illicit purposes or for financing or terrorism, according to the global international standards that are already in place and to, uh, at the same time, restore the functioning of the Afghan economy. Is there fear, though, that the Taliban could find a way to circumvent safeguards? The U.S. and and many people, of course, uh, uh, fear that, and that is why the negotiations are, are ongoing as to what type of additional safeguards can be set in place. For example, uh, the Biden administration is now saying, we want a third-party contractor defined by the United States to be a sort of, uh, uh, you know, a watchdog over the movements of the money in the central bank uh, to make sure that uh, they are not bypassed and and so on. So, uh, I mean, this this is a possibility. And like I said, it's, it's a, a basically a global standard now. At the same time, there are some people who would prefer the money stay in America and go to victims of 9-11, though, right? That's what the Biden administration uh, decided. U.S. President Joe Biden signed an executive order allowing half of the $7 billion in frozen assets from Afghanistan's central bank to be set aside in a trust fund slated for humanitarian assistance in the country. To basically set aside half of the amount of the total reserves. The rest, $3.5 billion, is held back while U.S. courts consider claims for financial compensation by families of the 9-11 victims. Uh, Some of the victims of 9-11 have come out and said, hey, you know, you can't uh, take this money away from the people of Afghanistan. It's very different when you have uh, an institution that belongs to the financial system and to the overall economy general than if you directly make that uh, a liability of the Taliban uh, movement itself. Soon after the attacks, my husband and I published a letter called uh, Not in Our Son's Name, calling on the administration not to retaliate against the people of Afghanistan for the attacks of 9-11. It's beyond my imagination that it should have come to this. Afghans are hungry. Afghans are starving to death. What can the central bank do with this money to help the Afghan people when and if it's released? So when people need to buy food from abroad, they need to send an international wire transfer. And banks have their accounts at the central bank, and the central bank pays for those imports of food with reserves. But if those reserves are blocked, they can't pay for imported food. That's why it's very important to have those reserves be available for the central bank so that the central bank can make them available to the banking system and people, companies, businesses can go about importing necessary foodstuff, energy, and other requirements for day-to-day life of uh, people in Afghanistan. You know, the the situation is is very bad. Uh, Also, uh, 
you need this to uh, signal to the global economy that you have enough uh, muscle power in terms of reserves, in terms of uh, a stock of money, so that uh, your currency is worth a bit more, right? I mean, when the funds were frozen, the value of the currency in Afghanistan went down radically. And of course, that makes the, the people of Afghanistan lose purchasing power. And of course, it makes their currency basically worthless. Have you ever seen a situation as desperate as the one that Afghanistan currently faces? I will be completely honest. I have never seen something so uh, desperate in terms of the use of uh, central bank reserves, in terms of the threat and, and the action against a, a domestic economy. And I've seen some pretty bad stuff in, in terms of embargoes, in terms of blockades, in terms of you know withdrawing cash transfers to a country and so on. I think the situation in Afghanistan is definitely a, a worst case scenario, yeah. So it sounds like it could help this current crisis that Afghanistan's in, but it's not going to necessarily help them kickstart a new economy. What's going to get them there? First, you need to stabilize the situation. This is an ongoing humanitarian crisis. <laughs> Not only were the funds frozen, but basically all of the humanitarian aid from Western economies also froze when the Taliban took over. So uh, there are no funds basically entering uh, the Afghan economy. And the money is there. The money is there. It belongs to the Afghan people, not to the Taliban. We have to put in the adequate safeguards so that there can be actual central bank management and policy for the benefit of the people. Andres Arauz, he's an Ecuadorian politician and economist and a senior research fellow at CEPR. That's the Center for Economic Policy and Research. Earlier in the show, you heard from Ali Latifi, who's a freelance journalist based in Kabul. Our show today was produced by Victoria Chamberlain, edited by Matthew Collette, fact-checked by Laura Bullard, and engineered by Paul Mounsey. It's Today Explained. more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. 
You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com Flagship. This is a paid advertisement.